are you doing? I hope you're having a wonderful day. You are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We are broadcasting live from UBC's Point Grey State, UBC's Point Grey campus, <laughs> CITR station, at the unceded ancestral and Muskim ter- uh, tradition. Oh my God, what is happening today? I'm sorry. You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna start again. <laughs> we are. We're broadcasting live from UBC's Point Grey campus on the unceded ancestral and traditional Muslim territory in Vancouver. I am your host, Saira Unju, and apparently I can't talk today, which is a good thing because we have a lot of pre-recorded content for you today. So I'm just gonna go ahead and start, you know, I'll let you know what's happening. So we're gonna have, so we have... Two reviews. We have, first up, we have Ruby's interview with Caitlin Lee for the Vancouver Short Film Festival. Afterwards, we have Griffin's review of Haven that is being put on by the United Players of Vancouver at the Jericho Arts Centre. Uh, quick Adam PSA break. Afterwards, we're going to be back with some shout outs for Black History Month because if you do not know for some reason, uh, February is Black History Month and it is also unfortunately the shortest month so i don't know who chose to make the shortest month black history month but uh it happened somehow but we'll make the best of it throughout our shows during february we will we will be highlighting black voices artists events um you know sources so basically (laughs) black art that you can enjoy um, afterwards, we have Silvana's review of broadcasts from here. We were supposed to play that last week, but we didn't have enough time, unfortunately. So you're going to hear it this week. <laughs> and then lastly, we have Nico's interview with Metis author and poet Connor Kerr on his debut novel, Avenue of Champions. So without further ado, I will um, let you listen to Ruby's interview and Griffin's review, and I'll be back after those two. Enjoy. All right. Hi, Caitlin. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm here with Caitlin Lee, the writer and director of the short film in the Vancouver Short Film Festival titled Not My Age. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thanks for having me. So um, I just watched the film today. And uh, it was really, really good. And even though it was only seven minutes, uh, there was a lot of emotion and a lot of heart in it. So I'm just wondering, uh, was there a true story behind what we saw on the screen or, or if not, what, what inspired you to write it? Yeah, there, there wasn't a true story behind it, but I guess I was really inspired by a lot of the coming of age movies that I've watched. Um, Lady Bird, Perks of Being a Wallflower. I really liked all the like, yeah, like the youthful scenes where people just do like crazy stuff and they do reckless stuff. And I wanted to bring that to the screen as a short, but um, kind of do a little spin on it and have a grandma doing those things. And so if you watch our shorts, that's what you'll see. Yeah, no, I I really liked that, especially you know, you don't normally see people struggling with coming of age after the age of like 25. So it was really interesting to see her character just juxtaposed with her granddaughter or her her granddaughter, correct? Yeah. With her granddaughter, uh, one who was turning, grappling with turning 20, and then uh, the grandmother who was dealing with aging. Um, And I really thought that you portrayed that well when the scene where she was walking up the hill and she falls and you were able to tell the audience exactly what was happening with her uh, without saying anything and it was it was a really really powerful scene so um, as a director uh, how did you like tell me about the the shooting of that scene yeah um well that scene was really interesting in particular because um, it was actually not supposed to be raining. Um, and if you watch the scene, I think that the rain actually added a lot of rawness to it and a lot of authenticity 
one because it was like actually a very miserable night um and so I don't think the actor really had to act that much um <laughs> right <laughs> in a sense and she was she was a great sport but yeah I think in terms of directing the scene um it it was my first time directing a film and so um I really spent a lot of time um, in the preparation stages with the actors, just rehearsing the scenes and really, um, I guess, trying to, trying to get to the core of each scene for each character and what they're feeling and what it means for them and what's going on. So that um, on the actual day that we filmed, I really didn't have to do much directing. It was a lot more you know, let's do the scene, let's get another take, all that type of stuff. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I got to work with some really great actors and I feel really blessed. Yeah, they they were fantastic. I'm just wondering what your casting process was like. Yeah, so um, we did this film for a film competition called the Mighty Asian Movie Making Marathon, <laughs> um, which is an annual Asian movie making competition in Vancouver. Um, and so I originally pitched the idea with Jennifer Chan, who's uh, the younger actress in the film. And so I already knew that I wanted to make a film with her going into it. Um, and so we kind of brainstormed um, an idea together. And uh, in terms of casting the grandma character, um, it was really a stroke of luck because she was actually our only person who auditioned. Um, it's quite hard to find older actors. And so, um, but, you know, when we got into the Zoom audition um, and they read one scene, it was amazing. Like the chemistry was yeah, just- Yeah, the chemistry was, yeah. Was, was really palpable, yeah. Yeah, and so we really felt like we struck gold with her, and it wouldn't have been the same if we didn't have her. Right, that's that's amazing. So you mentioned uh, this uh, competition that you made the film for, so I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the logistics of how you got this film made, and then how it got into the uh, Vancouver Short Film Festival. Yeah, so... As I said, we made it for this film competition and we pitched around, um, I think end of June, um, where we did, it was like a video pitch, three minute video. um, And then um, we got confirmation that we were chosen as one of the eight teams to make a 10 minute short. Um, And then after that, we had about a month of prep time, pre-production, and then um, the competition itself was for 10 days um, where we shot the film um, and had it edited and sent it off um, to the the competition. And so, yeah, it got screened as part of that competition um, in the end of July. and where we won best first time director and then congratulations (laughs) thank you and then they um they screened our film at the vancouver asian film festival um in november um and yeah i just entered it in a few film festivals including the vancouver short film festival um and yeah so now now we're going to be screened at VSFF. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and do you have any advice for any other young filmmakers who are looking to get their shorts made? Yeah, I would say try to find opportunities like MAM and like um, I think there's like Run and Gun and like some other film competitions like that because they really um, give you an opportunity to like make a film like a lot of these companies give you um funding or like discounts with different things 
Um, and so it's really great. It's a really great opportunity to make a film and have have it screened somewhere. Um, because if you just make a film independently, there's, you know, not a chance, there's a chance that it might not be screened. Um, and so if you're just starting out, I think it's a really good idea to kind of pitch for these type of competitions and um, see where it leads. Um, even if you don't have a film background, I'm a UBC sociology student. I'm oh, hey, like, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not in the film program, and so, um, but I think there are a lot of lot more opportunities out there for people who are wanting to make mm -hmm. their stories. Um, and so, yeah, I would just say find these things and try them. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I definitely love that you're just going out and, and making this happen for you. I think that there are those opportunities out there for people who aren't just majoring in film. I, I have a friend who's like a, you know, a business major and he's out there doing that stuff too. So I, I think that that's, that's awesome advice. Uh, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Uh, and just one last thing, tell the listeners where they can find, uh, where they can watch your short film. Yeah, so um, the Vancouver Short Film Festival is um, this coming weekend, mm -hmm. um, and it's available virtually. You can go to their website um, and buy tickets to the program. Um, we're in program four. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and I look forward to all the people who are going to watch your amazing film. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great evening. Bye. Bye. I was recently given the opportunity to see live theater for the first time in who knows how long at the Jericho Arts Center, a play called Haven, translated for the first time in English from a French-language play created by Mishka Levine in 2018, and now hosted by the United Players of Vancouver on Thursdays till Sundays until, I believe, February 13th. I'll say immediately that I can earnestly recommend this play. It's quite well done and the translation makes it seem practically original to English. I didn't get the sense that anything was lost or accidentally awkward. What was awkward seemed purposeful to the story. The play begins with admittedly confusing, disparate stories that both slowly come together, becoming fascinating and less challenging than at the start. The play begins in an unconventional way, with what looks like two monologues about completely separate events, that the audience is expected and demanded to attempt to imagine similarities for the two stories is something I was not expecting, but it is something I enjoyed, although the initial story of one of the characters, Matt, was much more confusing at the play's onset than that of the other character, Elsie, so much so that I thought it was purposeful to have one story be straightforward and the other quite challenging. Of course, the mist does start to clear up, and the play becomes more conventional, which was more than welcome because it seems near the beginning rather cold, especially as the character Matt is quite emotionally subdued in the earliest scenes of the play. But I can promise it's ultimately one of the most refreshingly human plays I've seen in a long time. It's ultimately about human connection, and the way in which it goes about using that theme slowly and carefully is rather poignant in a world of constant pandemic. There, I had to mention COVID at some point, so I've gotten it out of the way. As a matter of fact, though the play isn't directly related to COVID-19, there were a number of COVID-related short films screened just before and after the play. And the more I consider the slow deconstruction of the boundaries of the set that occur in the play, and the theme of gradual reintegration into society, the more it dawns on me that even if the play was not meant to be a story foretelling the end of COVID-19, it fits that role perfectly, despite the original premiering in 2018, before quarantine began. And that sense of building trust, growing human connection, is owed much to the players themselves, of which there are only two in the whole production, both separated by construction tape and standing rather rigidly on opposite sides of the stage as the play begins. 
The story revolves around a hole in the street, and it becomes clear that this hole represents the gaps left by loss or loss of memory in the two characters themselves. I don't want to spoil anything, because I do recommend anyone to see it, but I do have to talk about the direction, which as I see it was excellent. The character of Elsie, who just lost her mother to a car accident, constructs furniture from her mother's books, especially her fictional bestseller called Haven, and later appears to drag them close to her along the floor as if she were a hole and trying to fill the gap her mother's death left in her with her mother's work. The symbolism in the stage directions is endless and constant. There are so many more choices just like that which really elevate the play to the level of effectiveness that it achieves. And this is also thanks to the actors, Tina Georgieva and Alexander Lowe, who play the characters of Elsie and Matt. As I said, the play starts out somewhat cold, but as the barriers between the characters are broken down, they each get opportunities to showcase incredible emotion, and both characters, despite turning directly to the audience to monologue, quite often feel very real and very in the world thanks to these actors, and also thanks to the set itself. Beyond the dialogue, most elements in the play lend to this feeling of slowly gaining trust and reaching back out into the world, even with pieces of you missing. And the set design is one of the most creative of these. The stage itself is a typical black box or studio layout, with the front row of seats placed on the same level as the action. I think this layout is ultimately the perfect place to stage Haven. It literally brings the audience closer in a play about people being brought closer together and mending these holes within them. I mentioned that at the start of the play, there's warning tape separating the characters, but the tape actually surrounds the stage as well, and makes tight boxes for the characters to initially move around in. It's intentionally and cleverly restrictive. Both characters are, after all, sort of driven into corners by their individual and separate issues. And these characters are separate, by the way. You won't learn that Matt is actually Elsie's long-lost brother, the storyline is in fact all the more compelling because there is no such element of fate that ties the two together. There is a sheet at the back of the stage on which are projected a few painting-like graphics that are meant to lend to the moods of the characters as they change. There are also a number of shrill, discordant notes here and there that do well to mix with the scenes as presented by the actors. These are thankfully few and far between. I felt as though in certain places the graphics on the sheet were even somewhat distracting, and to be quite honest, though purposefully abstract, I didn't get the sense that much was added by some of the more glaring graphics themselves. If they were meant to be accessories and not vital elements of the characters' moods, it seems odd that they were directly center of our view, and sometimes quite bright on the sheet. I will say that I did, overall, feel like the graphics added to the atmosphere when they presented rain or snowfall, but the graphics that demanded I look away from the action to read or attempt to interpret abstract colors and shapes did few favors to a play where my eyes were otherwise constantly darting back and forth between the calculated actions of each actor. The actors were mostly individual during each scene and focused at points on the stage, so it was odd that the objects on this sheet competed for my attention when none of them were as important as the action itself. Again, those that were simple backgrounds were completely reasonable and welcome. Overall, Haven is a play with a lot of repetition. The name Gabrielle Soriol, Elsie's mother who writes the book called Haven, is repeated countless times as well as Sarajevo, the city where the character Matt is originally from. Certain phrases are repeated so frequently that they become unsurprising, and others only once or twice, such that they are shocking. I left the theater very satisfied by how well the play leads the audience to answers for the many mysteries within. But I did not find an answer for the meaning behind the constant repetition. Perhaps it was a way of showing that the characters are stuck dwelling on the past and what they have missing, but I am unsure. I'm actually happy that I have this remaining mystery to dwell on, because Haven will stick with me for a long time. The play is very detailed, but I believe much is better left unsaid in a review, especially as the advertising and even the program are so near completely opaque about the play that I think there is infinitely more value in seeing Haven for oneself than listening to me talk about it.
I'm unsure how many tickets are already sold, but I believe the play is also being streamed online. I thoroughly recommend anyone eager to start going to live theater again to see Haven. It was a concentrated and thoughtfully organized, written, directed, and acted event, with very few pieces out of place. The haunting debut album Black Moon by Civic TV provides a cinematic backdrop, a modern-day symphony of the dark and light that is our collective reality. Take a listen to Black Moon, now available via Flemish Eye Records and on all streaming platforms. The Aboriginal Front Door Society is a culturally safe, peer-designed, non-judgmental place for Aboriginal peoples, their friends and their family in the downtown Eastside. It's an accessible space where Aboriginal folks can experience, learn and participate in traditional Aboriginal culture, teachings and ceremonies as part of their healing journey through life. Right now, they're accepting donations of food and warm clothing, which are needed more than ever as residents of the downtown Eastside face the challenges of COVID-19 and winter weather. If you're able to help, you can drop your donation off at 384 Main Street on weekdays between 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. That is 384 Main Street. To learn more about the Aboriginal Front Door Society and other ways that you can support their work, please visit abfrontdoor.org. Hi everyone! Hello! Welcome back! You're listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM and I am your host, Saida Unju. If you're just tuning in, um, welcome. You came at the perfect time because I'm about to tell you all about the movies that you can watch at the VIF um, Center slash the online portal that Vancouver International Film Festival has and also we have Silvana's review and Nico's interview coming up so also let's let's take a moment to appreciate Griffin for his first arts report review um, his arts report debut so thank you Griffin for being with us so um, as I mentioned in the beginning if you don't know February is Black History Month and VIF Center is showing um, different movies for this month. So Black History Month as, at VIF offers audiences an opportunity to engage with Black stories from a range of Black voices from around the world, as well as the richness of nuanced and empowered Black filmmaking. Uh, so I will list the movies that you can watch. You can get all of this information at vif.org or if you just type Black History Month VIF on Google, uh, you will find the link <laughs> to go to this. And all of these movies, they're being shown multiple times throughout February. So... Um, I'm not going to mention all of the dates for all of the movies because that would take a really long time. So make sure you go to vif.org to check out all of these movies. So they have, um, first up, Lingui, The Sacred Bond. Uh, I don't know if I should read the blurbs. I feel like not for now. So I'll, I'll read like a, a sentence. <laughs> um when her 15-year-old daughter becomes pregnant, a single mother's shame swiftly transforms into fierce maternal determination. Second up, we have music, money, madness, Jimi Hendrix, experience live in Maui. So um, this is the Jimi Hendrix experience storied visit to Maui. We have polystyrene. Oh my god, I so I'm so I'm so sorry. I can't speak today for some reason. Third movie, <laughs> polystyrene. I am a cliche. Polystyrene was the first woman of color in the UK to front a successful rock band. Um, fourth, we have Spotlight on the Porter. So not only Canada's biggest black-led series, the Porter also boasts the first all-black writer's room. It is set in the tw uh, 1920s, so give it a look. <laughs> the Learning Tree, 
a bittersweet and idyllic story about a year in the life of a 14-year-old Newt Winger born into a poor black family in Kansas who learns about love, fear, racial injustice, and immort immorality, not immortality. <laughs> um, <laughs> this title has the N-word in it. At someone, as someone who is not black, I will not be saying that the sleeping, you know. So this is Skinner Myers' radical debut feature, it's an uncompromisingly confrontational movie, a portrait of a young black man on the verge of making it. Uh, second to last, we have tribute to Sidney Poitier, A Raisin in the Sun. The first film in our landmark series curated by Naya Lewis, A Raisin in the Sun, is the film version of the acclaimed 1959 play by black writer Lorraine Hansberry. It's the story of tensions in a working class family in Chicago in 1930. And lastly, there is Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America, the most important film about race since I am not your N-word. <laughs> Who We Are is an eloquent, I can't pronounce that word. <laughs> eloquent? Eloquent. Eloquent? <laughs> Passionate and revelatory reclamation of the history America sweeps under the carpet. So if any of these movies sound interesting to you, go to whiff.org and check out the movies they have for Black History Month. And this is not all. Next week, I will be talking about some exhibitions that are happening uh, around BC and some resources for you to find events for Black History Month. But for now, we will move on to Silvana's review. Right after Silvana's review, we have, what do we have? Oh, we have an add-on PSA. Uh, they're not long, so don't go anywhere. And after the add-on PSA, we will go to Nico's interview. And I will be back at the end to say goodbye. So for now, enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is Silvana, once again. We meet again. <laughs> um, it's been a really long time since I've contributed to the show, but I am really excited um, to let you know that I actually have a review for you <laughs> this week, starting 2022 with the, um, you know, with the right foot. Anyway, um, so what I'm here to review is called Broadcasts From Here. And it's an exhibition of work by multidisciplinary artists Lex Brown and Geo Wyeth. Um, and they both engage with a medium called broadcast or broadcasting. So we probably have heard of broadcasting as in news broadcasting or just um, the transmission or teletransmission of, you know, events, um, um, media, etc., um, however, these two artists um, really focus on broadcasting as a subjectivity, so as a way of seeing the world and as a medium to express lots of different things. Um, this exhibition is pretty nice, it's really interesting. Um, I was lucky to go on the opening day at Western Front. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Westerfront is located at 303 East 8th Avenue, so near Kingsway, and it is a super cute um, venue um, that is pretty immersive. Um, I was lucky to go on the opening day by myself, and I was also the only person at the given time in the like in the um, in the gallery and it was honestly a pretty fascinating experience because it was totally immersive and I really had time to ponder <laughs> and think about um different things and experience with all my senses um the the work by both artists um so I really recommend you join you have a lot of time to do so it's it's going to be um, at the Western Front from January 22nd to April 16th of this year. 
So take your time, but make sure you put it in your list. It's something really nice to do, say, on a Saturday. That's kind of what I did. Um, so yes, 100% will recommend. I will now talk a little bit more about um, the work itself. So when I first went in the room, um, I mean the big room, <laughs> Um, in the front of the um, of the gallery, um, I was I was a bit confused. I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, there's this first space that has like three little radios with their little antenna, um, and also a part of the floor in this room was just like a vent that had also lights and it emitted sounds. Um, and it had wind, there was a, there was a small fan also in it, and it was just really, oh, whoa, what is this? Um, and this is part of Geo Wyeth's, um, work, which is called Muck Studies Department, um, and this is supposed to be a, fict a fictive, um, municipal agency, and what's supposed to happen is the protagonist gets in touch with what stinks beneath the surface. This is kind of what um, I was given at the front, um, at the Western Front, just um, about what it was. I feel like without this information, I wouldn't be 100% able to tell what it was about. Um, but basically, what is broadcasted is a bunch of different sounds. Um, it kind of seems like the protagonist is in a construction site of some sort and they're exploring um some sort of material or um they're trying to study what it is um it's a bit mysterious um and then the protagonist of so Gio's voice also just repeats a lot of different things um like um dimes coins um gas and then also the same word without the g <laughs> so that i don't have to say it out loud um and it's just um a bit confusing i will say i didn't completely um completely understand it um without having read what it was really about um but um what i understand is that the project merges inherited black atlantic american funk and folk poetics with techniques of investigative journalism and then it connects all these other kind of like sensorial um, things like the coins, the the gas, the smell, the sounds. Um, and there's also really deep vibrations. So um, I was sitting on a chair and you could feel the floor just kind of move. Um, and it was interesting. Um, however, what I want to highlight the most about... Um, broadcasts from here was um the 30 video 30 minute video that lex brown um projects that's called communication um and so <laughs> it's literally all about communication it's such a broad topic but um i feel like she does a lot of um critique about the ways that we communicate and the ways that we can communicate more meaningfully. Um, it is also a critique of communication companies. Um, and um, it's really interesting the way that it's made. It's kind of like a power, like a parody. Um, and it just makes fun of, um, <laughs> of these like big company, telecommunications company, obviously fictitious. Um, called Abnisha. So Abnisha, of course, is a play in words um, with Abnisha, which is just forgetting about things. Um, but also the Omn um, is the same... I don't know if this is a prefix, but um, it is... Um, it's just like a wing to being everywhere of always. It's like when something is omnipresent, when someone is... Um, yeah, so um, it's it's kind of like all-encompassing. 
And so communication companies, um, if we think about it, um, also social media, Facebook, Meta, whatnot, <laughs> um, are in a way omnipresent in our lives. Um, and communication um, has just been shaped by technology, um, not only in the way that we send messages, but also in how we connect to one another. Um, so in the video, um, Lex Brown basically plays all the characters. Um, <laughs> and uh, we see Lex with um, wigs and um, things and like props and it's it's at the at the beginning it just looks kind of dank it's kind of funny <laughs> um but it's actually super deep um so Omnisha basically wants to take over people in this town um called New Greater Framingham and basically wants to create plot holes quote-unquote so um what I understand is basically disrupt the way that people communicate with one another, but at the same time with them making supposedly <laughs> millions. Um, and we see the CEO, we see this like other character that's kind of a quote-unquote tech bro. <laughs> and it's this guy that's like, oh, yeah, it's all good, but he's kind of lazy and... I don't know, you know, he's just a bro, what can I say? Um, and then there's also this AI um, voice, it's kind of like a Siri, um, but <laughs> it was really funny for me because it's called Sylvie in the, <laughs> um, in the video, and I mean, this is just like a, like a name that my name, my friends call me sometimes, so I thought it was really funny. <laughs> um, but Sylvie basically, like, it's not passive, but does a lot of things. And the dude bro um, of this company, tech company, just, like, relies on Sylvie um, to do a lot of things. And I don't know. It's just a very interesting, um, I feel, juxtaposition of... Um, what these like companies are really doing all the time, um, trying to say profit um, from our data um, to, in a way, manipulate and train um, the way that they want us to interact with media and with information. Um, and then there's this other um, person, which is Marie. It's a normal, you know, your standard like telecommunications user. Um, and she's on a call. And at the beginning, we see how she's talking to someone on the phone about nothing in particular. It's a conversation that's totally devoid of meaning or any sense. Um, and later in the video, we see that Marie um, starts to listen to, quote unquote, the little voice, which is um, kind of a voiceover moment in the video but it's telling her I'm not gonna say to wake up because that sounds a, li a bit alarmist but it's more like remember that there are so many other things um within you um that there are so many things that um, I mean companies um and other I mean structures of power um can tell us, but we can totally um, dispel by knowing our worth and knowing um, our values, etc. And Marie just starts like um, coming to terms with her world. And yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. Um, and it is, I think, a very relevant message as well. Um, in this sense, broadcasting, I mean, sure, it's broadcasting a video. Um, but it's broadcasting is also the fact that you're in a way performing for other people all the time. Um, you're, you are communicating, um, for someone with someone. And I think it's a really relevant message. Um, 
and I really enjoyed it. So I totally encourage um people listening here to go to Western Front. They're open from Tuesdays to Saturdays um in the afternoon from like 1 p.m. Um, and if you're curious about Lex Brown and Gia Wyeth, um, please go ahead and enjoy broadcasts from here. Well, thank you so much for your time, and I hope I can catch you with an, another review or hopefully interview sometime soon. Bye-bye! Discorder Magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theater, Discorder lives. favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theater, check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheater.com. <laughs> Alright, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it wrong. I'm about to spit yeah. in this mic like <laughs> freestyle elfin, you know? Okay, okay. <clears throat> Wait, hold on. Does it make sense? <laughs> <laughs> no, but who cares? Alright, let's go. <clears throat> Finally, we... (laughs) (laughs) You're not even gonna last. Victoria's Pretty Good, Not Bad Festival, Fountain, just back from France, Montreal... (laughs) What the f***? It's a script. (laughs) I couldn't even... What? Victoria's Pretty Good, Not Bad Festival, (laughs) Fountain, just back from France. What are you even saying here? Oh, you're trying to say these are the things featured in this one. You should probably specify that. Because even a f***ing elf couldn't understand that, okay? Think you can do better than an elf? At CITR, we want to have a variety of voices on the air. Want to write scripts? Do some voice acting? Broadcast your creativity? Volunteer with the CITR production department. No experience? We can also train you in everything required. Send an email to psas at citr.ca to learn more. And don't wait to get your voice on the air. Hi, thank you, Seda. My name is Nico Martimachino, and today I have the honor in discussing with Connor Kerr his debut novel called Avenue of Champions. Connor Kerr is a Métis Ukrainian educator, writer, and harvester. He is a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta, part of the Edmonton Indigenous community, and is descended from the Lac Saint Anne and Fort de Prairies Métis communities and the Papas Chase Cree Nation. His Ukrainian family settled in Treaty 4 territory in Saskatchewan. Connor works as a manager of Indigenous relations and supports at Norquest College and is a sessional instructor in the Pampi Chisowin program of McEwen University. In 2019, Connor received the Fiddleheads Ralph Gustafson's Poetry Prize. His writing has been anthologized in Best Canadian Stories 2020, Best Canadian Poetry 2020, and has appeared in the literary magazines across Canada. He is honored to be able to live, work, and chase Labrador retrievers around on the land that his family has called home for generations. Hi, Connor. Thank you so much for coming with us. Um, how are you doing? And congratulations again on the, the debut book. I'm doing well. Thanks, Nico, for having me on today. Uh, love talking about this. Love when I meet people who've read the book and enjoyed it. And so your book, uh, Avenue of Champions, we'll do a quick quick recap here for the audience. Um, but essentially, this this book has, has so many factors to it and a little bit of everything. Eh? A little bit of romance, a little bit of violence, a little bit of becoming, a little bit of historical context, and even just with the narrative the way that you wrote it a lot of uh decolonial methods now i just thought uh, maybe in simpler terms from the author could you just describe the book chronologically in a small synopsis yeah so a lot of it's situated around the um uh the community of miscuchewaskahegan edmonton itself and uh some of my family's story within that too you know uh, my great-great-grandfather a guy named john quinn gladju signed treaty six on behalf of the papas chase cree nation back in 18 18- 77 on an adhesion that Papas chase community was disbanded illegally by the government in 1888 officially and it created this displacement of indigenous peoples that were uh in that community the metis Cree peoples um my family in particular ended up in the uh like north of saint paul where the first stories kind of pick up on there so that would be like um the last dance i think is what it's titled and um and it kind of follows this trajectory of a family back into an urban uh, 
community um, from this from this rural place, but the urban community they're moving back into is you know the one that they're they're from basically the one that they've been living in for a long 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 time and. I always thought that quite interesting. Like, I never met her, but my great-great-great-grandmother uh, was born on the Pabas Chase Cree Nation, uh, you know, and she so she lived on the Pabas Chase Cree Nation as a young woman, grew up there, and then she moved back to, like, the city of Edmonton in the 1950s as a, you know, as a uh, an older woman now who's lived a whole life displaced from this territory that she was born on and grew up on. Now she moves back to the city that's now like, you know, because when she left, it was still just a little settlement. There was a fort, there was a few settler houses, there was a few little things here and there. But there wasn't, you know, this now she moves back in the 50s and there's now this whole big city that's been created and built up on the lands that she's lived on and grew up on and has existed on. And I found that like just a kind of an interesting concept to kind of explore, to try to talk about. And then the kind of community structure that gets created out of something like that. And specifically in Edmonton around the, the indigenous uh, kind of neighborhoods and areas. And when you Edmonton's an indigenous city, but uh, the one in particular where I ended up living and living for quite a few years in North side there uh, around 118th Avenue uh, and the community that creates there because it's like a um i i would often have this conversation with people when i'd be teaching courses or or chatting more where we'd be talking about what what this community actually is like this community is safer for indigenous peoples than necessarily like a suburban community where you know settler colonial society is like oh the suburbs are where it's at but for lots of people you know that's not a safe place and the safe place is actually within this community that kind of be associated with one of like maybe poverty or a lower income bracket or one of those things but there's a sense of um, a real sense of a kinship network within it and i want to kind of try to bring that out in a story and some of the, the different things that people living in there go through and in particular just because of honestly where my career has kind of taken me um, in the education sector and how you know indigenous youth coming from these backgrounds don't have a place within these education, the post-secondary academic worlds. And stories like uh, skating circles, you know, I tried to explore what that looks like for a 15, 16 year old kid coming in and trying to really um, get into the, uh, the st- or like the school and try to get, you know, registered, try to go through all of that, try to, um, and then that's the, the sure institutional racism that exists. And, and towards the end, I, I try to talk a little bit more about what that, you know, what that looks like, even uh, as someone who's been working in, you know, a sector like that for a while, and just the uh, the sheer, like, uh, lack of actual action around something and a lot of lip service to it and a lot of, you know, like, trying, like, um, and not from, uh, I feel the Indigenous peoples working in there are really working working towards actual change and really trying to push it and really trying to move things forward. But it's met with a lot of resistance at the top, you know, a lot of people wanting to really do big artificial, superficial gestures, but not really looking into in-depth nuances of what needs to happen to dismantle a like colonial system and allow Indigenous peoples to come in and allow Indigenous peoples to be successful and to, and to thrive there. And so it's trying to capture a few of those things. And uh, um, yeah, I think that's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a loose summary. There's a lot more that goes in there too, but those are some of the ideas. It's truly a wonderful story that really gives a lot of um, people like myself that haven't quite lived in, in the context of uh, Daniel, the protagonist, and indigenous people with um, relation to the land that only us uh, settlers or immigrants can really empathize and, and only listen and really just take in the stories for themselves. And it was a it was a good opportunity for us to, for me as a reader, to, to really understand and question things that uh, you as the author really bring to the forefront going with that i would just like to quickly quote something from your book so we can maybe discuss it a little bit more in relation to to the words of the narrator and it starts off in my short time working there i've already seen a few of these community engagement things happen they're always the same white people raveling the trauma porn of indigenous peoples and then writing a report after dragging up past dramas the report sits on the shelf and then the government employees head back out the next year ready to rehash it all again under a different director minister deputy minister whatever it's all the same yeah, yeah i uh i worked in a few different jobs i worked for the government for a very brief stint when i was in the beginning of my kind of career and and i saw lots of that honestly playing out and at the time i was working for a really uh, amazing lady uh nacho night done lady who had been part of the 60s scoop and who was in edmonton 
Um, and she had just started working for the government too. And I was, uh, you know, the two of us were going out and we were doing lots of um, meeting with elders across the province, chatting with them. And it was kind of funny because, you know, I was brand new. I was like a baby right out of university, getting into this like cool job, working for this amazing like indigenous woman who's leading all this. And she believes in this and um, she's just starting out. And so we're like, okay, we're going to change. You know, at the time we we're engagement sessions around like child welfare and child intervention system. And we're going out and we're meeting with these elders. And I remember like talking with like this one elder in particular on Enoch Cree Nation um, and uh, saying with him like, oh yeah, so we're going to like, you know, pile all this and then we're going to create this report and they're going to like, you know, they're going to take the recommendations and really use them to like change the system to better like indigenous people like um, experience in it and try to like eliminate and address the like over-representation of indigenous children in care, like you know, getting all the government language and uh, and this elder just like looks at us and he's like, no, you won't. Like, and we're like no, 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 this time it's different and because like my boss truly did believe it was different and uh, I didn't know any better at the time you know so I was like yeah it's different it's different we're gonna like change it all and then um and the elders was like no you won't but like because he knew we were indigenous people so he's like well chat we'll hang out or whatever and um and sure enough that report you know when sat on a shelf as soon as it was compiled and all that work went to nothing and then a couple of years later they're back out what's wrong with the child intervention system and at that point I was long gone from that but uh it's a it's just this constant ongoing thing in indigenous communities of this like this uh this rehashing the story over and over again and even you know we like we see that playing out in things that happened like this past summer with the um with the uncovering of the unmarked graves in the residential schools and that it's it comes as a shock and you see all these media articles and even these news articles that say like the discovery of the unmarked graves but for like indigenous communities there's no discovery there like these are things that indigenous communities know about right from the get-go like there's no one that forgets when their kid goes missing you know there's no one that ever forgets when their cousin or their sibling goes and where they are actually buried and those kind of things. And it's not like Indigenous people would ever just forget about these other people within our community. Um, and within the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, like calls to actions, there were, there's like five or six, I think, that address that specific thing. So it's not like this is a new thing for Indigenous communities and it shouldn't be a new thing for non-Indigenous communities. It's just been overlooked and people just completely ignored it. And then so now, and I, it's funny because I even heard like someone say, like, well, why don't we get like everyone together, uh, all the residential school survivors, and they have a chance to like share their like stories and talk about it all and we'll like create like action of them I'm like yeah that was 2014 that was the truth and reconciliation commission like they we did that already you know like there's no need to constantly have these people trying to like over like re-traumatize and get right into this over and over and over again to share this story that you know plays into settler guilt complexes so and another quote that I, if i may from your book um, going off of what you just said this is from chapter 12 anytime anywhere Though it was a waste of time of my efforts and passion and that I would have been better off doing something that didn't involve selling out to the government and education systems. I disagreed with her back then, but that was when I still thought that we had hit our TSN turning point in creating equity for indigenous peoples. But now it makes sense. Granny was right. Even when I was winning all these white wards and getting a lot of publicity for my cultural programming works, she always disapproved. Although I once got 29 when we were playing Crip, and she talked about it for 10 years straight. <laughs> great, uh, great, I've it. never got 29. I would love to get 29. I got 28 once, but I never had the jack that matched, you know, so I never got that extra point there for the 29. <laughs> but um, someday. So that's like my goal in life is to get a 29 in Crip. Um, I, I found that I was, uh, I was writing that cause I find such a paradox. So like currently even like I work at like Snowy's Laylam Langara college now in Vancouver, mm -hmm. um, in their indigenous education services area. And I find my job, it's such a paradox, you know, it's just so, uh, hypocritical sometimes because a lot often these like Western institutions and these post-secondary systems are really set up and designed for like, I would almost consider it like a new form of assimilation with indigenous peoples like coming in, but they're set up not for like necessary, this critical like analysis or critique or like you know uh, establishing like decolonial mindsets or anything like that but more direct employment kind of things like hey so like how do you these people will then get fed more into this capitalistic like system you know and so mm -hmm. um so i find it very like interesting because we're getting bringing indigenous students in we put in the recruitment we put in the retention supports we put in all these like services and different things and the students themselves you know um are then you know they're going through
through and they're being successful and then they get jobs like either back in a post-secondary institution or in the corporate world or wherever ideally back in community too and that that, that does happen but I just find it so like anti what often indigenous worldview and mindset is where it's more of this community-based like um approach to it all and but then for the individual students though like they want to better their lives so it's not like there's this is where I find like the the interest in it so when we chat with someone you know uh uh, a young like uh, a young person coming in who wants to you know like get a nursing degree so that they can go back and work in their community and like set a good example and create community health and like all of this I'm like like hell yeah like yeah we'll do that and we'll support you all the way through and or people who want to you know like get a good job so that they can support their family and get them out of these poverty cycles that have been imposed from like federal government policy and intergenerational trauma and they can break through this by you know getting financed and like um and so for their individual family like it means a lot but for like this larger collective like i don't necessarily know if it's like the best uh, the best thing in the long run like i i think there's a larger systemic overhaul that needs to happen but um for the time being and even right now like within indigenous communities there's an immediacy to try to break through a lot of these uh cycles that have been uh imposed by like the colonial structures around it so that's like yeah it's just one of those ones that's a uh, um like i love the work but i also hate the work <laughs> With the colonial system, I think there's a lot of love-hate relationships all around us, but a lot of open-ended relationships, you know, you just don't really know where things are going to go, you know, based on um, how far people are going to go along with you. I thought your chapter at the end there just gave such a good reflection of, uh, you know, those open-ended relationships that really like, hey, you know, like I'm... Yeah, it's beautiful. I can get out of, you know, the neighborhood that I've grown up that's maybe not as secure as, as one would like. But at the same time, I'm also in almost enabling and, and endorsing a, a system that only gets out one out of so many. Right. So it's it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a sense of sacrifice and consciousness. And I thought it was just such a great way to end the book because it just really open ended for me, at least thinking, man, we have such a long ways to go. But I thought that was uh, a testament to your craft of uh, just really letting the reader know that, um, yeah, this this life is, is very different in, in every story, you know, and that we need, we just need to keep begging the question, at least uh, hopefully some more risks can be taken. Yeah, and I think you're like, you know, you're, you're seeing that more and more within these, uh, within this future generations of Indigenous like learn like students and youth coming up not necessarily students but youth coming up uh um right now where there is a big push to change things a big push to have a different future than the ones that even like people my age did you know or people that like and, uh, and it's awesome to see their like their like their fight for it and their spirit for that and the and how they're pushing and they're pushing and they're pushing against these like uh, against these systems in a good way and they understand that like this can be done better and it's a beautiful thing to see because we don't uh, it's it's changed a lot you know from like generations that have come even before me comparatively to now but it's all set within the leadership that's happened in those generations you know where like the nokums the grandmothers the uh the grandfathers the aunties uncles like they held it down in their own way with like you know just making sure that these community structures still survive um the best they could with all the like pressures from the outside world being placed along that and so that you know we were able to set the they were able to set the tone and the framework for these youth now to be able to push even harder than they did and it's uh and it's all based back on their own like resistance and refusal to allow like they just absolutely refused for, to allow that to happen and now we're seeing where we've come a long ways where now youth are yeah just they're 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 doing so much and i'm very happy about that i want to see where it goes you know and how they how they can do it all but it was also kind of funny because i i heard an elder speak once about like what decolonizing an institution actually looks like you know because that's the big buzzword and mm-hmm. to really decolonize like a, a UBC or a Langara College or a Northwest College or whatever is to totally like take it all down and give the land back to the indigenous communities that it's in from really? initially, you know, and that's really like actually so. what decolonization would be. But no one wants to hear that. They want to be like, hey, like how do we put a TP on page four of our textbook? How do we how do we do this? And um, and so it's trying to get people to like shift the mindset around what indigenous governance in a collective way can actually look like on these lands here. I um, truly believe that this interview was uh, a privilege and really so resourceful for myself and hopefully the audiences and uh, i was just wondering if you had any parting words about uh, future works of yours um you know a new book a poetry we know that you also won a poetry competition in with the malahad so i'm sure audiences after hearing a few of um the quotes that i read you know if you want to know a little bit about connor please search him up yeah 
Yeah, it's a it's you know it's a classic square or Squarespace site where it's terrible, but it's basically just links, so it's all good. Um, um, so I did. I have another two books that are written and uh, coming out in 2023. Uh, another collection of poetry called Old Gods, which will be coming out with Nightwood Editions, same people who published Avenue of Champions. And I also have a novel uh, called Prairie Edge, um, which is coming out with uh, Strange Light, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House Canada. Um, and that will be in the fall. Old Gods, spring 2023. And then Prairie Edge, tentatively fall 2023. And then uh, I've almost finished up another novel called Duck Bill. Blind, uh, which will be coming out. It will be coming out soon, or we'll have more details around that. And then a nonfiction memoir that I'm currently working on, and this will be a little bit more, but it's going to be called uh, Harvest, a Métis food memoir. And it's going to be talking all about Ooh. my, like, you know, the terrible experiences with home cooking and food and stuff. And it's uh, uh, growing up and, and then also getting into more about, like, Métis 